This is Ben, and welcome to Ben Bo's podcast. And today, I have a great conversation with Jonathan Weiler, who's a professor at the University of North Carolina. And Dr. Weiler and his colleague, Dr. Heatherton, Heatherington, wrote a fantastic book called Prius or Pickup that I've recommended to numerous people over the past two years. If you want to understand the polarization of American politics, this is where you should start. The book is called Prius or Pickup. And in the book, uh, Dr. Weiler and Dr. Hetherington talk about the idea of worldview and that people tend to have either a fixed worldview or a fluid worldview. And strangely enough, I like to think of these worldviews as Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith. So there was an interview a year or two ago where Jada and Will were talking about the Christmas holiday. And every year, Will wants to go have a new adventure, travel to a new country, do something new. That's a fluid worldview. Wants Someone who wants new experiences, wants to try new things. Uh, Jada, on the other hand, wants to go to her childhood home in Baltimore. They sing the same Christmas carols they've always sung. They wear the same ugly sweaters they've always worn. They have the same meal for Christmas Day, etc., etc. That's a fixed worldview. Tradition. I like things the same. And in today's world, unfortunately, politicians have weaponized our worldviews. And especially the fixed worldview tends to make people more prone to accept various types of authoritarianism. So in this conversation, we talk about all of that. And we also touch on some fun subjects. So we talk about basketball, Michael Jordan. Was Michael Jordan a good teammate? We talk about the New York Knicks, especially the New York Knicks of the late 80s and early 90s. We also talk about the NCAA. Should Are, are NCAA athletes who've finished playing, are they owed reparations? And of course, we talk about Prius or pickup and the fixed worldview versus the fluid worldview. So enjoy. And what you and, and your co-author and colleague, Dr. Heatherton write about in Prius or Pickup is it used to be I I feel more strongly about these basket of policies, this basket of policies, therefore I guess I'm a Democrat, or therefore I guess I'm a Republican. And now it's flipped into this is my tribe, and if the policies change, it doesn't matter. I'm sticking with my tribe. You know, Ben, that's really right on. I mean, you know, it's so interesting that um you know, we, we've actually sort of very quietly, after, what what is it, 40 years, re-entered, at least for the time being, the era of big government of the United States, you know, these mm-hmm. massive spending bills. And of course, the Republicans all opposed it when the Congress just passed it because it was a Democrat. But as a philosophical policy matter, there's not really a serious debate anymore about whether we should be doing this stuff. You know, we passed $4 trillion worth of COVID relief last year, and then another $2 trillion just now. That's overwhelmingly popular with the public. Um, and that used to be the big dividing line between Democrats and Republicans was size of mm-hmm. government and tax and spend and you know, now it's all it's all it's all culture all the time now, um, and so I think I think just to your point, 
um, in many ways, the particulars barely matter at all anymore. What matters is, as, as, as you said, is just if my side is for it, I'm for it. And even more importantly, if the other side is against it, I'm for it. That's a key point, I think, because so much of this is rooted in fear and so much of this is rooted in anger. And so, like you just said, it's not just what do I feel strongly about positively? It's what am I against or what are the other, what, what does the other side feel strongly about? I'm against that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, as many people have said, you know, the name of the game nowadays is, is negative partisanship. There, there are these interesting data. I think, I think we mentioned some of this in the book that there was a survey done in 1960 that asked people, you know, like if your son or daughter marry, you're a democratic family and your son or daughter married a Republican, how upset would, would you be upset? And, you know, vice, same, vice versa. And it was like, five percent said they would be upset um and when these questions were asked 10 years ago it was like 50 percent of republicans and a third of democrats and and if you ask the question now there's no question it would be higher um you know and so to your point about i mean this really has become tribal if i can use that term in the most basic sense um, in terms of how we identify politically and how we see the other side, not as an opponent, but as an enemy who's just mm-hmm. really threatening our way of life. Right. We're, it's not that we're all on the team America and we have different viewpoints on the same team. It's we're on different teams and we want one side to win and one side to lose. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I mean, this really, you know, in a, in a way, this is analogous to just the vis- visceral emotional nature of sports allegiances. You know, it happens that I'm a Yankee fan and my co-author is a Red Sox fan who's always hated the Yankees more than life itself. But so it's like got all that emotionality and you don't even have to really explain why you're a fan of somebody. You just are. Um, but of course, the stakes are so profoundly greater. So mm-hmm. it has the emotional intensity of sports fandom and then real world consequences that are, you know, of the utmost importance. In your book, you write, in general, it seems worldview politics helps the rich and hurts the poor. The, the fixed versus fluid mindset, the tribalism of politics, the rise of authoritarianism, how much of it is due to the effects of capitalism? Good question. Um, and I guess especially how much of it is due to an era of capitalism in which we're seeing growing inequalities, mm-hmm. right? Because in a time where there's a sense of broadly shared prosperity, it would probably be harder for say populist or would be authoritarian leaders to play the politics of divide and conquer, you know, all that successfully. Um, but I do think in, in this era, particularly when many people in the white working class, you know, feel like the government is just not really responsive to their needs or interests, you know, one argument is that they just become more 
susceptible to or available to or open to, however you want to characterize that, these other kinds of cultural appeals. I mean, this has been the Bernie Sanders argument, right, that there are all these voters out there who have left the Democratic Party because the Democrats aren't delivering on their material interests. And so then they're going elsewhere because at least their kind of cultural worldview is being acknowledged. Um, and I, and I think there, I think you could criti- I think you could criticize as simplistic that analysis, but I think there's something to the idea that the more divided a society is, the easier it is to engage in divisive politics. And certainly inequality, gross inequality is one way that societies can be very divided. Right. And you even write in the book that after World War II, it was the least polarized environment in the U.S. that we've had. And also there was the most, the the lowest levels of income inequality. Right. Right. And the highest levels of trust in government and... Mm -hmm you know, a pretty broad governing consensus around, you know, again, very broadly speaking, New Deal liberalism. I mean, and of course, it's it's important to say, Ben, and lots of people have made this point, you know, polarization itself is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, that consensus after World War II was built in part on the backs of, you know, on the back of Jim Crow and uh, and and mass disenfranchisement of black people in the South in particular. And the reason, I mean, the starting point for this new era of polarization, arguably, is the emergence of the civil rights movement and the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, neither of us would say <laughs> that's a bad thing. It's too bad that it that's, of course, was absolutely critical and necessary to the most basic notions of justice, but it does also introduce new opportunities for, you know, devi- you know, divisive politics, um, and then overlay on top of that, um, and this really goes to your capitalism question: um, if capitalism enters an era of greater inequality, um, does it become possible to use? that racial divisiveness to paper over those, those, those class divisions. Right. What do you mean by that? Well, I guess I mean, you know, if you're, so there's a, you know, there's a famous quote from Lee Atwater, the, 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 the late uh, political strategist who was the mastermind of George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign, which included all sorts of racial appeals that, you know, racist Willie Horton ad. And and he gave an interview, he was in the Reagan administration at the beginning of the Reagan years, 40 years ago, in which he said something to the effect of, look, in 1954, you could use, you could use the N-word in your politics. And by 1968, you couldn't. Um, that was no longer acceptable. But you could talk about things like tax cuts and busing. And use this other kind of language and these other kinds of appeals, appeals to resentment, to racial resentment, that would allow you both to push a particular economic agenda that favored the wealthy, while at the same time bringing over to your side voters who were previously favored the Democratic Party, but because of their racial and cultural politics, 
might be amenable to Republican appeals. Right. And this, I think you make a couple of great points. One is that so positive social change, the civil rights movement, or and you reference this in the book, the LGBT movement and marriage equality, those come out of deep polarizations. The scary part is referencing Atwater, can those things then be weaponized to increase authoritarianism? That's right. And, 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 I, and, and I think we are seeing that. You know, when George W. Bush ran for re-election in 2004, on the one hand, he ran on, you know, the still the aftermath of 9-11, and the Iraq war had already turned pretty sour, but not it hadn't become as much of a quagmire as it would a couple of years later. So he made those kinds of appeals to national security and, you know, his Department of Homeland Security kept manipulating the, you know, code, we're in code yellow, level terror alert. Somehow we heard about those alerts every day during the campaign. Um, but what, what Karl Rove, his strategist, also did was put uh, bans on gay marriage on the ballot in as many states as they could, with the thinking that they would, this would help drive evangelicals to the polls in numbers that would put Bush over the top. So they clearly wanted to, at the time, weaponize what they thought was an advantage on the issue. You know, within a decade, gay marriage, support for an acceptance of gay marriage would become so widespread that you would no longer get. You would no longer try to use that issue, as you say, to 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 weaponize that issue to push a conservative agenda. But they were still trying that, you know, as recently as two thousand and four. Right, hundred percent. I mean, they. It wasn't just state, but various states. It was George W. Bush ran on a platform of a constitutional amendment. That's right, Ben. That's right. To ban gay marriage. And, you know, I guess that was 2004. So 12 years later, Trump, the Republican nominee and president, was in favor of gay marriage. That's right. And and Karl Rove's father, it's been reported, and Karl Rove is basically confirmed was gay. I mean, it's just interesting. It's sickening. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And Ken Melman, who I think was the chair of the Republican National Committee in 2004, later came out. And then, you know, apologized for having been part of that attempt to demonize uh, marriage equality. It's just, it's so ugly. Uh, Speaking of ugly, you write about the phrase working class billionaire. And I remember Sean Hannity interviewing Trump and calling him a blue collar billionaire. Uh I guess my question is, why are Americans so stupid? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We just I, stupid. And I, I just, I, 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 <laughs> that question has come up so many times in my, <laughs> it's an hour adult lives. Um, all right, let me, let me, let me try to answer this in as even handed a way as I can. Right. So, so what is that about? I mean, so the one thing about Trump that I, I think is undeniable is, and I don't, I don't know how much he thought. I mean, Trump is an interesting mix of, he's been this unrelenting character his whole adult life in pursuit of his personal interests, whether business 
or political. And, and one has the impression that he's just been nonstop, you know, in doing that. On the other hand, he strikes me as really lazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but, but whether it was by intention or instinct, he did figure out a way to talk to people um, mm. that many people would find resonant. And that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't debunk your question about why Americans are so stupid, but he did find a way to connect with people. And, and I guess the one thing I would say, I, I don't want to say in his defense, but trying to think about why he resonated so much, if there, if people do have a sense of being really disconnected from elites in this country or feeling like they are being looked down upon and spat upon and pissed upon, et cetera. And here comes Trump really effectively voicing all of those resentments. You know, I, I've, I've heard it said, and maybe you have too, Ben, that like what Trump can channel is that he comes from Queens and he spent his whole life being resentful of these elite Manhattanites and trying to break into that club and that he was able to find the register to channel his own personal resentment into, you know, political gold. Um, And so again, I don't think that necessarily is a debunking of your question. I'm just trying to think about, you know, how that resonates. I will say one other thing, Ben, though, I guess about kind of the question of intelligence. You know, there's this been interesting work that's been done that shows that more educated conservatives, including some Mm. highly educated conservatives, are more likely to be climate deniers than less well-educated conservatives. And I think one explanation for that is what their intelligence allows them to do is marshal and rationalize data and arguments that a lesser intellect might not be able to. Um, so, so, so I, and I'm not saying that that's the kind of predominant block of Trump voters, but that, but there, I mean, Laura Ingraham. I mean, whatever she, whatever else you think of her, I do not think she's a stupid woman. Right. Um, I mean, she's. You know, I think she's a uh, evil. <laughs> um, and, that's, and that's smart. Yeah, yeah, but you know, but she, but she, she, I would say, she is in her way a very effective rationalizer for whatever it is she she thinks. One hundred percent, and and helps other people rationalize that same worldview. Absolutely. I, I, I think. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. Go okay. I was going to say, I think with with. Uh, Laura Ingram and all, all of the Fox crew, again, going back to the idea of incentives, you know, they, they, they're making a ton of money. That's and right. so, you know, if, if, if we could have a truth serum, you know, we might get different um, answers behind closed doors. But as far as making money and what gets the bills paid and, and making millions of dollars as a host of your own show. You know, the, the incentives all point in one direction. They, they, they know their audience, which goes back to your question a few minutes ago. <laughs> Why are right. Americans so stupid? Yeah. Well, and, you know, if I take a stab at answering that question, I mean, I, I was a high school teacher and I have a PhD in educational leadership and trained teachers. 
And, and I was a high school teacher in public school in the Mississippi Delta. Um, so going back to Lee Atwater, yeah. you know, Brown versus the Board of Education is 1954. Yeah. Integration actually happens in Mississippi in 1970, Christmas 1970. That's how long all deliberate speed lasted. And then, of course, what happened in a lot of counties in Mississippi is there was the public school where all the black students went, and there were private white academies. And even when I was teaching in, in the Delta in the early 2000s, there, there were two white students at the public school, and everybody else went to the private white academy. So we've hollowed out education, and you know, there's in, in a place like Mississippi, there's white academies, there's Christian academies, there's private schools, there's public schools. And, and I'm somebody that, you know, I went to a private school for high school, went to a private school for college. So I've benefited from that system, but that system has divided all of our resources in terms of educating our children. And so we have uh, a, a population that's becoming more and more uneducated and therefore easier to take advantage of. You know, it's interesting. You're just reminding me, uh, I'm just thinking about, I know this took place in Tennessee, but yeah, I'm just thinking about The Blind Side, you know, this incredible mm-hmm. movie version of it, which is, in the end, such an extraordinary, you know, a really American dream story. Um, but, you know, the family that took Michael Orr in were clearly part of this private Christian academy system. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you're that you're describing and that just doesn't it just doesn't register in the in the popular telling of that story at all i, I i'm just just reflecting on that as, as you're describing that right no and i was in oxford uh when michael orr played for the university of mississippi and when that book came out, i actually met michael lewis when he did a reading in oxford and the twoies you know are oxford alumni mm-hmm. and you know, I think I think this is important, and you make this point in the in the book as well, and you've made it, you've alluded to it in in, in our talk right now, which is the fixed versus fluid mindset. Um, people people can have either mindset and be caring, compassionate people. People can have either mindset and be Democrats or Republicans. People can have either mindset and and you know be helpful people to society or unhelpful people in society. And so I think that story um, of Michael Orr and the Tuies is, you know, Hollywood is always going to sort of round out the corners, but it, it's, I, I would guess that the Tuies have a fixed mindset given their background, yep. but they also, you know, lived their Christian beliefs in terms of, helping somebody that that society had thrown away. And, you know, Ben, this is such such an important point that you're making because part of what's happened in our politics, and let me be clear that I am guilty of this, is once you know a person's political identity, and among other things now, you, you can know it before they even tell you, right? I mean, based on whether it's the car they drive or what kinds of stickers are on the car or, you know, just other clues in terms of the clothes they wear. And, you know, some of the things we talk about in the book, once you know that about a person, you, us, we make an immediate 
stark judgment about their fundamental character. And in that regard, politics, you know, the old feminist slogan, you know, the personal is the politics. I mean, what's happened in our politics now is that the politics has become the personal in the most profound way. Um, and, and that is that has not always been true. And I do think it it, it, it lends a particularly, you know, to go back to a just de- depressing sort of all or nothing character to our to our politics. Right. Right. Back, back to which team are you on and who wins and who loses? Okay, let's talk sports, and I have related to our our conversation so far. I have, I have another sort of serious question, and then we can talk fun stuff like the Knicks and Michael Jordan. Um, but first, let's let's talk the NCAA and exploitation of of college athletes. Um, do you think worldview plays a part in that? Interesting question. So. I, I know that in surveys I've seen, you know, pub, just public opinion surveys on questions like, do you think college athletes should be paid? There's a very clear racial divide and a predictable one that African-Americans are much more likely to say, yes, they should be paid, and whites are much less likely. And I would guess, without us having run this data, that there would be a very clear distinction between white liberals and white conservatives on that issue. And I think part of the reason probably has to do in this case with tradition and legacy, and part of it probably has to do with the notion that certain people should just know their place. Um, And that that is, in a very fundamental way, what's at the heart of some of this debate about whether athletes deserve more of the fruits of their labor than they're getting, or whether they should consider themselves incredibly lucky because they're getting this free ride and all this great attention and et cetera, et cetera. hundred percent. And when we're yeah, talking, so what, what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah. Uh, well, it, I think you're exactly right. I think there's a huge racial component to this when we're talking, especially football, and again, I worked at the University of Mississippi for nine years. You're talking about mostly black players bashing their heads in, literally damaging their brains, yep. damaging their health. Yep. You know, the, the injury rate in football is 100%. Everybody's going to get injured at some point. Yep. Literally damaging your health for, you know, people say scholarship. It's really a tuition waiver, right? I mean, the university is just not charging tuition. Um, and it's, I mean, it's just so ugly and it's so off. I, I stopped watching football about 10 or 15 years ago, pro football. I, I never watched college football, pro football. I grew up in New England, so I was a Patriots fan, Brady fan, but I just stopped watching because it's, you're just literally watching people harm themselves over and over again for your own enjoyment. You're, you're a better person than I am. I mean, I have <laughs> any of the things you do about football, but I, I, I do still watch it. I mean, it's interesting as I've gotten older, and I don't know if this is just age or something else, but the kinds of explosive hits that one sees on a football field, um, whereas I used to be like, ooh, that's really cool. Now it's just, 
they it's visceral. They just make it makes me cringe. Right. Um, and maybe that's because we know more. You know, I don't know why, but no, um, me too. Yeah. You're, you're watching a car accident where the effects aren't going to be felt for 30 years. Yeah, that, that's a that's a that's a great way to say it. You know, Ben, one, uh, if, if just if I can vent for a minute back to the my question. So Doug Gottlieb, the uh, the, the broadcaster who I, I know many people find him annoying, not just me. Um, he, you know, he's one of the people who defends the current NCAA model and says, you know, scholarship is great compensation. He makes an argument that many people make that just drives me nuts. And the argument is, you know, these players, if you take away their jersey, they don't add any extra value. So really, they're the ones benefiting by this relationship with the university. (laughs) And I'm sure you can add to them. There's two reasons why that drives me crazy. First of all, if it were really true that they were just interchangeable, they would have recruited me or you, (laughs) not say Joel Berry, the point guard on UNC's 2017 championship team. So the notion that just anybody could play and it makes no difference to the university, if you think about the resources universities put into recruiting, the millions of dollars, as I know you well know, They've spent on these outrageous facilities with their pods and, you know, their bowling alleys and all that stuff in, in, their, in their athletic centers. Why would they be doing that if it made no difference to the university and its bottom line who showed up to play there? So that, that's the first reason that drives me crazy. And the second reason it drives me crazy is if I take Doug Gottlieb out of CBS Sports and I measure their bottom line before or after, are you going to tell me that there's any meaningful difference whether he's there or not? And if the answer is there isn't a meaningful difference, then why should we pay him anything other than his travel expenses? He doesn't add anything to the organization above just a very marginal product. And so I, I just find it amazing that people use the transparently bad arguments they do. Again, I think just to rationalize and defend something that they personally have benefited from. 100% agree. It, it, again, like Fox News, like all of this, it comes back to incentives, right? And who gets paid and, and who, who, whose labor generates that yeah. wealth. Yeah. To, to me, the NCAA argument has always been um, well, players can't get paid because they're amateurs. Why are they amateurs? Because they can't get paid. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> That's it. Circular. Yes. Exactly. You know, to, to his credit, at least, you know, Jay Billis, who's as prominent in a personality in college basketball as there is, is also able to, you know, call out this BS. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I, personally, I have friends that I've had conversations with that 10, 15 years ago were saying similar things. You know, well, they get a scholarship. I wish I had a scholarship. And and people have come around. I, I think, you know, we referenced gay marriage earlier. I, I think this is an issue where people are s- slow for my, for my taste, but are slowly coming around to I, the right I, thing. There's been a huge change just in the last 10 years. Every legal battle now seems to go against the NCAA, which didn't used to be the case. And and I agree with you; it's all moving much too slowly. But it is 
it does seem like it's it's only a matter of time before the model changes pretty fundamentally. This raises an interesting question for me, which I haven't seen raised anywhere yet. Are NCAA athletes owed reparations? That's, that is an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess in this context, we would call it back pay, right? Right, exactly. Right, exactly. That yeah. Hazardous back pay. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, okay, let, let's add on some more, some more fun topics. Um, I don't want to get you in trouble because I know you both went to UNC for graduate school and, and worked or professor at UNC. Yeah. You and your colleague had a good podcast about kind of breaking down the last dance. And this is a question I've thought about off and on. I'm doing a little bit of writing about Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Do you think Michael Jordan was a good teammate? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I know you wear Carolina blue, so I never get you in trouble. Especially as a Knicks fan. Right, uh, that's right. Important good to my mental health during much of the 1990s. Um, I don't have much compunction about saying bad things about him. Although I will say, I found him then to be a really compelling personality on The Last Dance. 100%. Like, really enjoy i mean you know whatever he's he's got his massive ego and blah 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 but he was super that documentary the footage was great it's an amazing run it would not have been nearly what it was if he were i mean i know that espn is planning to do the, like a similar size series featuring tom brady and oh my god i can't think of anything more boring than that <laughs> um so, so let me just give Jordan props for being really interesting. Um, yeah, and, and, and but before you get to the to the heart of the question, I wonder if you had the same thought I did, which is every time they cut to him, the first thing I looked at was, you know, what's that? How, how much liquor is in that glass? Because if, there, if there's not much left, he's going to be more forthcoming. Yeah, it, yeah, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, back to the teammate question: Was he a good teammate? Was he somebody you would want to work with? I, I guess I'm of two minds about this because on the one hand, if the bottom line is winning <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's what everyone on the team wants to do, and that includes just falling in, I've been rewatching the Sopranos mm. uh, and, you know, I'm just thinking about comparing Michael Jordan to Tony Soprano in a way. I mean, Tony was such a, you know, a, a, a mother effer in so many ways, but um, his guys loved him. You know, mm-hmm. because of the way that he ultimately, I think, served their interests. Um, and I guess in some ways I think of Jordan that way. Um, and I'm not saying that I personally could have dealt with that at all, because uh, I'm not sure I could have. I mean, the stuff about Steve Kerr, Ben, I thought, I thought Kerr was one of the more interesting people in the documentary. And, you know, they're, they're, the way that Kerr seemed to be able to stand up to him and that Jordan respected him for that. Um, I thought all of that was interesting. Um, but what I would say about Jordan is I think he's so single-minded um, that I, I think he's genuinely not a pleasant person. Um, but again, I think if I'm thinking about it from a bottom-line perspective, um he did what his teammates wanted him to do, which has helped that which has helped them win championships. I don't know, what, right. what, what do you think about that? Uh, I don't think he was a bad teammate. Yeah. I also don't think he was a great teammate. 
uh-huh. from what I've what I've read, Scottie Pippen was was the you know everybody from Steve Kerr to whoever says Scottie Pippen was the best teammate they ever had. Pippen was the one who put put his arm around your shoulder uh-huh. and you know kind of lifted you up when when times were tough or when Jordan was yelling at you or what have you. But but like you said, it might be that Jordan is the type of teammate that you didn't particularly enjoy playing with, but years later you really appreciated. And 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 you can imagine. I mean, obviously. I mean, we saw some people in the documentary who clearly hated Jordan years later. Um, but I think there were others who, the way you characterized it, Ben, I think that is how they would look at it. Boy, this guy was an was an asshole when we were playing together. But man, am I glad that I was part of all that. And the stories I can tell for the rest of my life are, are gold, you know. So he, he's, exactly. he's an character yeah i mean to win three in a row is so difficult yeah and you you know you need somebody that just has that single-minded drive yeah 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 well let's let's end with the knicks uh so i know you grew up i guess in the in the early 80s um i was i was i grew i was born in 1965 so you know i was five next closely by the mid 70s to my misfortune the first year i started following them was the year after they won their last nba title ah shame (laughs) so it's been almost half a century and i have not gotten to um and i grew up just and just fyi i grew up three blocks from madison square garden so oh wow the mecca i was right there yeah yeah okay so clyde frazier bernard king charles oakley who's your favorite uh, so I think Bernard, you know, there were those couple of years there in the mid eighties where he was just such a joy. Um, and you know, Frazier, I really only saw after his peak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, d- I didn't get the full Clyde effect, although I love him as an announcer. He's just mm-hmm. hilarious. Um, so I and, and you know I would say probably my favorite player of all time was was Patrick. Really um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean I you know for all there there were flaws in his game, but I felt like he he did just put everything he had on on, on the floor for you know for fifteen years for that franchise and um so I I do I do have a a very soft spot for for him. Mm. That's great. Uh, he he was certainly the the superstar of that team, but most I think every New Yorker and Knicks fan that I know, it's either Anthony Mason or Charles Oakley or John Starks. I rarely hear people single uh, uh, Patrick Ewing and, and all those guys. I, I mean, Mason was a unique player. Oh yeah, I mean, coming <laughs> from the CBA, what a in like, what Istanbul. A, yeah, right. And, and and now, I mean, it's interesting in this era of positionless basketball, he would make much more sense to people. You know, then like six, seven, Burley handling the ball. I mean, you know, there was just nobody like him at that time. He he um, was Draymond Green twenty years earlier. That's ex- that's exactly thirty years earlier. That's right, Pat. That that's what he was. Right, Draymond Green, who I'm not sure he ever could have shot a three pointer, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, looks like, yeah. A, looks like a grenade when he shot it. Remember that? Yeah, exactly. No, that, 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 that's the right parallel. Yeah. Uh, there was a great article 
an oral history actually in the athletic the other day of this semi-famous training camp fight between Xavier McDaniel and Anthony Mason. Ah, the yeah. X-Men. Yeah. yeah, I'll send you the link when we finish. It's, it's a nice walk down memory lane. Apparently, Riley just had these training camps at the College of Charleston that were, you know, borderline uh, illegal in terms of their brutality. Hand-to-hand -hand combat. Well, and the Knicks brought that style onto the on, – I mean, I love those 90 te 90s teams so much, but mm -hmm. I understand why anybody who's not a Knicks fan, <laughs> they're basically ruining basketball. <laughs> I mean, that style of play was I actually think that that is a good illustration though of Riley's genius as a coach because he looked at that group of players and asked himself what's the most I can get out of this group and I think that was the style of you know obviously yes. and with the Lakers before and the heat after totally different teams um, but that group I think he made a very clear calculation about What's the farthest they can go? Oh, it's playing like this. Hundred uh, percent. We talk about great players as being adaptable or not adaptable. You know, I think yeah. maybe someone like Patrick Ewing would probably um, be less effective in today's game, whereas someone right. like yeah. Scottie yeah. Pippen or even Larry Bird would would be more effective. Yeah. But the, the best coaches are also adaptable. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, Jonathan, this has been great. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and sharing your work with us. And I hope we get a chance to do it again. Really enjoyed it, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This has been with Benbo's podcast. And you can find all my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.